Dr. Diseko Kumalo, should I say an honor to be in conversation with you, a distinguished guest. I'm really hyping you up you big are, time here. You really, really are, aren't you? <laughs> How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. So you, you're fresh out of a plane? I am. I landed on Friday evening. Uh, mm. Curiously enough, the, the schedule had changed. I was actually supposed to land on Saturday. And then because I threw a cocktail party to sort of launch this project that we'll be discussing um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts on Wednesday, last week, Wednesday. And then things kind of shifted. I had to catch a flight on Thursday, landed on Friday. And I'm sort of trying to find my feet, trying mm. to also get a bit of a reading of what's going on in the country in terms of the mm. academic scene since one has been away for a long while. There are, of course, those elements that stick out like sore thumbs. Um, you know, there are quote-unquote governance crises across the higher education landscape of South Africa, which, of course, we find very intriguing. Mm. Um, some of those governance crises have made global news and have raised heads and ears all across the Atlantic and the likes of Cambridge, Harvard, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's, it's just, it's been an interesting time. Let me just put it like that. But yes, I'm back in the country. I am. So how long have you been away for? I was away for the one academic year. So that mm -hmm. would be uh, March, not, not March, sorry, uh, August to May of this year. Okay. Uh, and you're still lecturing at the University of Fort Hare? I do teach at the University of Fort Hare. I was very, very fortunate when I arrived at Fort Hare because I arrived on the permanent role in September, October of 2021. Um, and by that time, I had already been awarded the Harvard South African Fellowship Program. I spoke to my seniors, uh, uh, Dr. Sampita Blanche, as well as uh, Professor Neil Ruiz, Sampita Blanche being my uh, immediate HOD, and uh, Neil being the dean of the faculty, uh, Professor Ruiz. And we sort of worked out a concessional sabbatical, which is completely unheard of. You know, a sabbatical only is granted after five years of having had slaved in the institution. But we worked out a concessional sabbatical from the institution, which facilitated my capacity to go and take up the uh, fellowship at Harvard University, which I am entirely grateful for because of the work that happened, um, you know, at Harvard University, the networks that we were able to create and build, and some of those networks will be visiting South Africa in the next few months in terms of, and I'm hoping to host uh, some of our guests from the United States alongside the University of Fort Hare and other institutions as well in the country, mm -hmm. collaborating as a system uh, in line with uh, Professor Ahmed Bauer's vision at the time when he was the CEO of University of South Africa to say, let's work together mm -hmm. to build and capacitate the higher education system of South Africa, yeah. Part of the reason why I ask is that um, you would have seen, of course, the last couple of months, um, some of the scandal that has come out of Forte University. Yes. And we, uh, <laughs> you don't open a newspaper without seeing the University of South Africa, UNISA, mm -hmm. uh, questions <coughs> around its vice chancellor there. Mm -hmm. You have the UCT Saga. matter mm -hmm. that has also been making national headlines. And international headlines. And international headlines. Mm. So as somebody who is part of the academic system in this country and is still very well contributing to it, who finds themselves at a global stage, mm. what are the kind of questions that you get asked about what's happening in our country? Well, the moment I say, and I lived with this quite a lot when I was away, to say that I am a lecturer at the University of Fort Hare, and for those of us who know our history, we will know that the University of Fort Hare is the oldest historically black university on the continent, mm. uh, followed only, I believe, by Dar es Salaam in Tanzania and uh, Makerere in Uganda. Like, and those in themselves, I think, are about 50 years or so younger than us as Fort Hare. And so there's the prestige that, you know, especially in the American context where you have HBCUs, historically black universities and colleges, or colleges and universities, rather, HBCUs, um, and it's, it's, you know, folks are ec ecstatic to see a young black academic, you know, involved or being based at a historically black institution on the continent. Um, but it, it, the, so the questions for those who are in the know, and it's usually the seniors who are in the know, mm. they, you know, they ask questions around our safety. You know, when we go back home, are we safe to be teaching? 
And I suppose my own response to that is always to say, you know, um, if we look back into the history of the University of Fort Hare, you have people like Z.K. Matthews. I believe he is the grandfather, if not the great-grandfather, of the current foreign minister, Naledi Pandal. Um, and, you know, you've got these towering intellectual giants that sort of paved the way into the establishment of an institution that is globally recognized and globally and continentally celebrated, having mm. had produced the likes of Seret Sakama, the likes of Nelson Mandela, Robert Mugabe, Kenneth Kaunda. These are sort of the gifts that we had birthed the African continent with. And there are other conversations that are happening not only on the global sphere, but also locally. I was recently at a meeting convened by my good colleague, Jonathan Janssen, uh, in March of this year. He had invited a couple of us um, into uh, a conversation thinking beyond decolonization. And of course, you know, my senior colleagues will ask, you know, what, what's the likes, what's the footing, what's the feeling at the University of Fort Hare? And I think outside of the massive, massive challenges that we have, challenges, of course, that are inaugurated by our vice chancellor's commitment to clean and ethical governance at the university, uh, and for folks who don't necessarily want that, um, I, I, I'm of the view that those challenges are beyond my pay grade mm. in the first instance. <laughs> in the second instance, mm. I'm more concerned with my students. Mm. I'm more concerned with, you know, allowing or facilitating, at the moment, the universities in high spirits and in great celebration. It's graduation. It's been the graduation weeks over the past couple of weeks. And it's just so beautiful. I felt terrible that one of my students was graduating and I was not going to be in the academic procession because I was still uh, in Cambridge at, um, at Harvard. So I, I think this is, a, this is a postgraduate student, of course. Um, and so I think that, you know, looking inward from the perspective of the foreigner, right, in the sense of being outside home, as it were, um, made the picture look a bit more interesting to say that the one system or the one sector in South Africa that remained incredibly functional post-democracy and was not prison to the looting, corruption, and maladministration that we saw in the state institutions across the country was higher education. Mm. Now, the reason why we have the battles playing themselves out, UCT, UNISA, uh, the University of Fort Hare, those battles are playing themselves out because it seems as though in the case of UCT, the former vice chancellor had, I, I would believe, and, and, and I'm cautious of this because I don't know the entire story behind it, but it seems she, she challenged particular ways of doing things. Um, I, I, I saw good Prof. Bani Bidyana's comments around Professor Lengabula's uh, management style at UNISA, and I found that incredibly troubling to have a senior uh, berating, especially a male senior mm -hmm. uh, who had held the, the role previously berating an incumbent, um, to the extent that I would even ask, can predecessors actually shut up and allow incumbents to do their jobs? Um, and in the case of my own vice chancellor and principal, Sakela Wuthlungu, Professor Wuthlungu, I believe he has and enjoys the support of all of those of us who want the institution to do what it needs to do, mm. which is to teach, learn, and conduct stellar internationally ranking research. What is the opportunity cost of where we, of where we find ourselves? And I ask that question because you've come back to launch this project, which we're going to get into shortly. Mm. But <coughs> as we are fighting uh, about these issues, debating about these issues, who's right, who's wrong. It seems to me that we're also losing valuable time on things that we could be investing our energies and efforts into. I think you've got the nail on the head there, Kathy, because really, you know, we're, we're bickering, we're squabbling. Um, and at the same time, what I find to be the problem is that in the majority of instances, some of our students are not aware of the bigger problems that face the world currently, right? Mm -hmm. So there are massive, massive battles that are playing themselves out globally, which is, of course, the Ukraine-Russia invasion. Our own foreign minister, Nadi Pando, has insisted, both here at home as well as on global platforms and fora, that yes, what is it, uh, Ukraine 
and Palestine. We also have to consider the question of the people of Palestine under Israeli apartheid in the what is it in 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 the in the Middle East. Um, so our students are so focused on the fees situation that we are forgetting uh, global problems and global challenges. And I wonder, you know, if as a South African academy, forget the administrators, forget the questions of governance, us as academics, lecturers and professors, are we inviting those real conversations into the classroom to our students in order to conscientize them to say, when you graduate and leave this institution, these are the problems that you're going to be contending with. De-dollarization, the rising cost of living all across the globe. Um, you know, standards of living decreasing all across the globe because the economies are tanking as a result of the shifting geopolitical landscape that we have with, of course, the big five, the BRICS countries kind of really backing the notion of the de-dollarization, fueled, of course, by the sanctions of the European Union against the Russian Federation. So there's a whole host of things that are happening and that we need to hold in play uh, as we are teaching. Right. In order for us as a South African academy to say that we are preparing individuals who are competent in our disciplines, but who are also global citizens, because we cannot close off our students to the South African context and the South African context alone. We're in conversation with Dr. Siseko Kumalo. It's his voice um, that you're hearing now. We're going to take a quick break. We'll then get into this work that he is going to be producing over the next couple of months. On SAFM. So, Dr. D, uh, Dr. Kumalo, let's talk then about this Black Archive Visual Podcast. What What is it? Well, you know, there's two streams or two tracks that one can follow when one applies for the Harvard South African Fellowship Program. You can either go for a degree awarding program, or you could go for uh, you could go with a visiting status uh, approach, which is what I went with. I've always held, I really truly have always held that I will not read in the north, but I will teach in the north, um, and that is to demonstrate the very salient point and to disrupt the queer logics that we have in this country and across the global south. That in order for you to be legible in the likes of Harvard, Cambridge, Oxford, Yale, Princeton, you have had to have had training there. And I'm like, mm. absolutely not. I come from Rhodes University and the University of Pretoria. Those are my alma maters. I do not, well, of course, now I add, I can add Harvard as having had been, uh, 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 what is it, a fellow there. But primarily that was, so those are the two streams that you take. And then I think, okay, I'm not in a degree awarding program. What do I do, right? What is it? that I can be able to say I walked out of the Harvard South African Fellowship Program carrying. And I was reminded of that amazing interview that Nikki Giovanni uh, had with James Baldwin, Jimmy. Um, and that conversation was taped in the 1970s, if I'm not incorrect. And I thought, you know, we're constantly, as intellectuals, having incredibly exciting and riveting conversation. How's about we take that to the public? How's about we actually showcase to the public what it is that we're sitting with every time we're thinking, okay, let me write a paper, let me write a novel, let me compose a piece of music, let me compose a piece of artwork. What what are the processes that we're thinking about? And, and do the artistic creative outputs that we bring facilitate ways of liberating black potentialities across the globe, whether it be in the West Indies, your Jamaicas, the African continent, the diaspora, North America, South America, can what we are doing ignite global movements around blackness such that we are able to build institutions that respond to the life conditions of our people? Mm -hmm. Did it come out of your own experience having to be at an institution that is not South Africa, that is not African? Or is it something that you started thinking about before you even went into this program? So the pilot episode, which airs on the 5th of June, is with Usi Hisipononjogweni, who is uh, the children's book author of the Wanda series and also the host of the Ultimate Book Show, which aired on SABC3, I believe, last year. So she's the pilot guest. She and I met here in Johannesburg, I think it was in August, uh, if not July of 2022. And I said to her, 
friend, I've got this curious and weird idea. Mm-hmm. And she says to me, go, let's go try it out um, in Cambridge and see what the hell happens. So she was flying into California to screen the film, uh, um, her, what is it, Nobuntu, the film, her mother's poetry collection, Journey. And then she sort of crosses from California to Boston to meet me at Harvard. And that's where we, you know, we taped, in fact, the first episode of the show in the Center for African Studies space. Um, and after that, I sort of, you know, reach out to the folks in the office, the executive director of the program at the time, uh, Alex Taylor. And I say to Alex, Alex, I've got this idea. What do you think about it? And he says, we've got a studio on campus in the library that will give you a professional sort of um, take in terms of the work that you want to do. And so that sort of started in that way. And Harvard is a, is a place that draws the world. The world comes to Harvard. It's not the other way around. And so each and every single one of the guests that I was speaking to are people who are either on fellowship at Harvard, who are visiting Harvard, senior professors. For example, one of the cats that I managed to have a chat with is the likes of Paul Tiambe Zaleza, who is presently, I think tomorrow, will be giving the keynote at the Africa Conference here at the University of Pretoria. Uh, and is based at Case Western Reserve University in the United States of America. So you have all of these amazing people. Nia Ikwe Parks, a British-based Ghanaian author and writer who's going to be releasing a new book right now. Assistant Professor Jesse McCarthy of English Literature and African and African-American Studies. Mm. Um, really, really just amazing, amazing colleagues um, that I was able to sort of just by chance bump into them. And I think one of the most exciting, exciting artistic creatives that I met while I was there was the likes of Dario uh, Kalmisi, who did Viola Davis's uh, cover, um, you know, uh, that famous, famous cover that we saw of Viola Davis, as well as, um, what is it, as well as Teddy Mazina, who is a political exilee of Uganda based in Brussels, between Brussels and Rwanda, and who's doing incredibly amazing work on some of the situations that are playing out on in the DRC in the Congo as a result of historical stereotypes in terms of how black people were classified and categorized by European colonial invasion. Mm-hmm. What are you hoping will come out of archiving this knowledge, this information in in the way that you are? Two things. The first is that I am very serious about establishing an area of research conceptualized as black archival studies. Mm-hmm. And that's not in the historical sense, right, in the sense of history, uh, historians and historiographers as well as, archi- what is it, archival archivalists, Rather, it's to borrow from the art, the music, the poetry, and the literature of black folk, specifically in the context of South Africa, having in 1956 uh, b- have brought in the Bantu Education Act and then in 59 brought in the extension of the Higher Education Act. L- two pieces of legislation, by the way, that are preceded by uh, the move that was done by James Stewart at Lovedale College when he took over the principalship in 1870 and put black folk to wagon-making, book-binding, um, and agriculture. So I want to demonstrate mm-hmm. that irrespective from 1870 to 1994, when there was universal franchise in the country, black folk continued to theorize and think through the fact of blackness. Mm-hmm. That be in music, in theater, in literature, and in poetry. Mm-hmm. And to dismiss the notion that theory building can only be found in your Kierkegaards, in your Heideggers, in your Camus, in your Immanuel Kants, in your Hegels. I want us to take seriously black intellectual thought and its historiographies, be that in the work, for example, of Dumile Feni, his artwork, the work of Gerard Sugoto, the work of Busim Klongo, the work of Ledambulu. You see, I want us to genuinely say, here are our archives. How do we build theory with them? It's not an easy feat, especially when we look at the challenges that academ- academics and institutions seem to have traditionally around the knowledge gathering process and why it is that when <laughs> knowledge is developed, we can even just talk about indigenous knowledge, mm-hmm. that when it comes to your traditional um, institutions, it has to almost pass certain muster mm-hmm. before it can be considered as knowledge mm-hmm. in the first place. And, and I want us to have that conversation when we continue. 
It's just after 10.30. It's time for the latest news headlines. We're continuing the conversation with Dr. Siseko Kumalo. He, of course, is launching the Black Archive Visual Podcast. You heard him there saying it's part of a bigger project to show that black intellectual thought has been taking place for decades now, and it needs to be recognized as that. (laughs) This question about black intellectual thought does it is it going to face the same debate sort of that gender studies introduced to academia that the idea that gender needed to be studied even in the first place as a discipline is it going to be the same thing that is a beautiful question kathy um it's a methodological question and i appreciate it quite a lot because at the moment I've been working on a piece titled Outlining, um, what is it? Outlining a Black Archive Methodology, or Outlining a Methodology Using the Black Archive, rather. Mm. Um, and I'll say two things to this to your question. The first is to say that historically, we have seen gender studies position itself as conceptual tools, right? So it doesn't claim to be a theory. Mm. Um, And that is because a lot of women have understood, they understand the challenges of what it means to establish a theory and what theory has done in developing and curating the world. Theory has been immensely violent. Now, and we, the Zulus, have made peace with violence. Uh, No, man, you can't say that. (laughs) At an ontological level, at an ontological level, We've made peace with it. So this is, what am I, where am I getting with this? I'm getting to say that it, as a result, I, I, I'm framing the work that I'm doing, Black Archival Studies, as a theoretical framework, right? Because I want to curate the world. I do. I want to curate the world in ways that are just, equitable, and ways that facilitate our ways of thinking, which have historically been repressed, to come out into the world for a number of reasons. The first of which is the fact that liberal democracy is failing us in this country as well as globally. Liberal democracy is amok. And so how do we begin to think about democratically conducive forms of social governance that are not necessarily based in liberalism because liberalism never recognized people like yourself and myself, mm-hmm. women, women, black male, black woman. You were you were never even in the sort of remit of mm-hmm. of what would mm-hmm. of what would be recognized as human. Now, if we say that that system that that never recognized you and I, liberalism, will be the system that governs South Africa, is it no wonder then that we have all the challenges that we currently have right now? So. I'm trying to, on the one hand, sidestep some of the short com- some of the shortcomings of the gender studies program, because gender studies gave itself as conceptual tools, and I'm saying I am giving us a theory, mm. uh, and I outline processually the tools or the systems in which you can arrive at a theoretical proposition using this black archive, right? And to also say that the Black Archive borrows from a number of disciplines. So while I was at Harvard, I managed to finish a manuscript uh, that is currently under review that looks, for example, at the work of Esikei Mkai, reading him from a number of disciplinary vantage points, Iyalamawele, as as he penned it in 1914. I read it as an anthropological text, as a literary text, as a philosophical text, as a historiographical text, as a political text, and as I forget what the sixth one is, I think maybe it's a linguistics uh, approach. And I say, if we read this text in these disciplines, what methods of reading do we actually come up with? Which is what I'm fascinated by. If I take Gerard Sukordo, Song of the Pick, and I put it in front of my students, first year philosophy students at the University of Fort Hare, and say to them, analyze this for me from a philosophical perspective. Give me, quote unquote, a black aesthetics. And I'm not sure that there exists a black aesthetics yet. But if I say, give me a black aesthetics, I don't want them to still be relying on, quote unquote, white historiographers, white South African art historians who have always misread black art, by the way. So so that's where 
I'm trying, or that's how rather I'm trying to sidestep some of those challenges that we find in gender studies. It sounds like it's difficult to be a, a black academic who holds a particular view of the world that is innately informed by one's blackness um, when you then also have to produce work that is peer-reviewed and that is held up to a certain standard of people who might not fully understand your, your experience? No, definitely that is the case. Um, but at the same time, as I say, my training is in philosophy. Mm. Um, and so in philosophy, what we're really primarily after is problem solving, nothing more, nothing less, which is to then say, how do I effectively communicate the existential fact of my blackness through processes of theorizing, right? And of course, one can say we can do two things, one of two things. We can either try and hold the hands of others and say, okay, let's go along with each other on this, or one can radically break with historical molds of developing theory in the academy and chart a new path. I am inclined for the latter without necessarily doing what the South American school of decoloniality has done, which is the delinking conversation, because I believe that that is essentialist. But I do want us, there has been a lot of critique Kathy, in the South African Academy and everywhere where you've seen decoloniality. So it's the South African Academy, the UK, in Canada, there's been a hell of a lot of critique in Australia. We haven't genuinely seen generative theoretical propositions that can say this is how the world can look like. Mm -hmm. This is what the world would or should look like if we are using this thing called decoloniality and our own knowledge systems. I am interested in that. I am interested in saying how can we fashion the world in different ways. Now, the white conservatives in this country will say to you, Sosego, that's dangerous. We tried that out with the apartheid state. That's why we have the likes of Stellenbosch, Free State, and the University of Pretoria, because all of the social theory that gave us the insidious, oppressive legislation that curated South Africa came out of those institutions. And I say yes. I, I, I say yes, but I am not acting with mm. this black archive from that vindictive and evil spirit. I am suggesting that if we want justice, that there be justice for all. But taking seriously the fact that the majority of this country are black people, we've got to take that seriously. How is it that the minority continues to enjoy privileges that they enjoyed under apartheid in this country, and the, and the, uh, what, yeah, the minority enjoys those privileges, and the majority continue to be eking out an existence at the margins of society? I find that to be fundamentally, fundamentally problematic. And we saw... We saw those eight days of July, and as a responsible intellectual, I say to myself, I don't want that to be the repetitive cycle of where this country is going to go. And ask yourself why it was in that moment, philosophically, forget the political bullshit, excuse my French, forget the political stuff that, you know, commentators, political commentators gave us, because I believe that they were incredibly ill-advised in their commentary. What gave us that moment was the continued debasement of black ontology in this country. Black people are always said, oh, stand by the doorway, they will let you in when it's time. In that moment, Ibu Tolga Zuruli gave the black populace a moment to say, our ontology is being recognized. What do we do with that? And I do not want to see this country burning. I would rather see us investing in the building of South Africa. Dr. Siseko, I'm going to take a quick break while I get you to clean up your language and make sure we don't end up at the BCCSA. Please. We continue the conversation on the talking point and really getting into the ideas that are being brought forth by Dr. Siseko Kumbalo and why he believes it's important um, that we begin documenting. It, it's really documenting the black experience in many ways, how that has found itself into the arts, into culture, into literature, and he makes an argument for why he can then use that to develop black theory academically. Why is this work important, um, Dr. Siseko? Why, why must people care mm. about this work? 
firstly, let me apologize to the listenership for my terrible use of language. I sincerely and wholeheartedly apologize to everybody for that. I think I was just in, heated in the spur of the moment, and I had promised myself that I wouldn't do it. I'll send you to uh, the naughty corner, please. And, and I will take it. I will definitely <laughs> take it. Um, why is this work important, Kathy? Um, there are a number of reasons, but the one that I think for me is the most important. My, my doctoral was looking at the question of forging a national identity in South Africa using two the, the works and the writing of two historical scholars, uh, black scholars in this country, and that will be William Wellington Gopa and Samuel Edward Kroon Mkai, S.E.K. Mkai. And I go back to this work because Ugoba was writing in the 19th century, Umkai was writing at the beginning of the 20th century, and both of them had not been influenced by liberalism, right? Both of them were writing about and envisioning a society for South Africa that would be able to hold these competing identities in tandem and coevally. And I suggest that this work is important because for a very long time, black folk have been sidelined. So in the 1980s, we've got the establishment of the tricameral apartheid, of the tricameral parliament, rather, um, and what the tricameral parliament does is that it includes coloreds, Indians, and white folk. Um, and black folk are still absent from that space. We then have universal franchise, 1994, everybody gets to vote. Yipiru, ANC goes into power. And they've been in power since, and it doesn't seem like they're, do they're doing a, a really good job. But asikorapo um, We get the universal vote, universal franchise, but the conditions of our people stay the same. Mm -hmm. Now, during the lockdown, we see the incredible, incredible suffering that black South Africans face in this country when they are unable to meet that one to five dollar per day, you know, per diem, if we can call it that. And, 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 I'm, and I am interested in saying that condition exists in the ways that it does because we have curated and structured our worlds using white theory. What would the world look like if we used black theory? Theory that really took seriously what it means to be a black person, to be an African on this continent, and not for us to constantly aspire to European modernity, to aspire to a European identity, but to really sit with ourselves and say, we are a nation on the continent, we are Africans. How do Africans conduct their modes of life? How do Africans organize their schools, their healthcare systems, et cetera, et cetera, without having to capitulate to foreign and Western conceptions of the world? So for me, that's really, mm. the work is theoretical for sure, but it is us folks in the universities who shape the realities of our world across the globe. So how do we then seriously take the project of shaping the world in equitable ways for black folk? Is it not too too late for that question? In the sense that where we are today mm. has been so shaped by this very theory mm. that you are questioning, um, that even how we used to do things is lost to us mm. as African people. Mm. And when you ask people today what it means to be African, you don't get almost a uniform answer. There are different ideas over what Africanness is. And I love that, Kathy. Mm -hmm. I think that that is what makes the project then of theorizing from the perspective of blackness so enriching because it is not homogenous. Mm -hmm. There are those who come from the city metropoles, your Johannesburgs, your Durbans, your Kabechas, your Cape Towns. There are those who come from your rural outskirts of this world, um, Zimkulu, um, you know, um, you have all of these spaces that hold blackness equally, right? And all of these people suggesting or thinking about blackness in radically different ways. I think the problem, if we, if we are going to face a problem, the problem is going to be an attempt at homogenizing the experience of blackness. Mm, mm. Let's rather facilitate a way of reading the black experience wherever it is situated, be it in Santon, be it in Ilanga, Kayelicha, uh, be it in Tanzania, in East London, in Monti, 
be it, you know, Emlazi in Durban, be it Etewinun in Hillcrest. You know, let us open up our capacities to be receptive to the fact that there are different experiences of blackness. Now, the challenge there means that the kind of graduate that I train mm -hmm. needs to be attentive to each and every single one of those voices, be it a graduate in philosophy, my own discipline, be it a graduate in anthropology, a graduate in sociology, a graduate in political theory. Each and one of those students needs to be attentive to each and one of the single voices, black voices that come out in the country. And to then be able to say, I've heard the black voices, what of, for example, my colleagues, my friends, my fellow South Africans, who mm. are on the other side of the divide, who might be white, who might be colored, who might be Indian, which is to say, we are building, we are attempting to build what Roger Smith calls political peoplehood, a nation that stands together, which by the way, refutes the concept that we encounter in the work of Mahmoud Mamdani, who says that the project of fashioning nationhood means the expulsion or expunging of certain groups. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in the multiplicities of identities, the multiculturalism that is constitutive of this nation, being able to point at the project that is South Africa and say that I am a South African. All right. Dr. Siseko, I've got some questions for you on uh, the line. We'll take a quick break and then we'll get our callers to put those questions to him. Hashtag SFM Talking Point. Let me go straight to the phone lines. In Kabeja, Bruce, good morning. Yes, morning. Thanks for taking my call. I appreciate it. Sure, and, Bruce. Uh, commendations to the to your um, your guest there. It's clearly an intellectual, and we need a lot more of them. Believe me. My difficulty with some of his statements, though, is to me problematic. And I would say to him going forward, when we communicate, I know we're limited by language, but some of this narrative, these continual expressions of the same phraseology, so misleading, and I'll put it to you, that the general one, this whole idea that the minority continues to enjoy privileges, which the majority don't, is only partly true at a particular level. It is not completely true, and it is false on so many different levels. My concern is, and I'd happy to debate you why I say that, I can rationalize and motivate that we could spend a day on this topic, why that is not the right way to express yourself. But I understand the idea, what he's imparting. My problem is, Using that narrative is misleading, it's factually incorrect, and it causes division and hatred, which manifests in so many different ways. So I don't know, maybe you can have a program on this thing. There's so many of these phrases that, you know, one, one of my favorite is the rich keep on getting richer and the poor keep on getting poorer. It is just factually incorrect. The poor are also getting rich, richer, but we repeat these mantras over and over and over. We need to have debates and intellectual conversations like this that can go dig a little bit deeper than these sound bites. So, so Bruce, which are, are not, uh, Bruce, which are problematic. Yeah. Let me just come in there. Um, what what are you basing the fact that it is not true on? Okay. Well, firstly, what privilege means is I'm not sure because privilege is 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 something which it's some. I mean, if we talk about privilege in itself, economic privilege, okay, that's one thing. But yet, four to six hundred thousand whites, which is probably ten percent of the population, lives below the breadline. I've been to these squatter camps. It is purely white, and these people are living like flipping animals in these in these in these locations. Those people, if you told them they're, they're privileged, they're enjoying all the privilege of the past, that is just factually incorrect. Now, if you take that mantra and you apply it at a certain level, oh, if he went into a bank, he would, he would be heard before, you know, those kind of nuanced arguments. But someone that is suffering that goes to bed hungry with no resources to their names. Now, I went to quite a, 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 a good high school in Port Elizabeth. Some might know it, Gray High School. But yet, I look at most of my friends, they don't own anything. They're living paycheck to paycheck. So you say to that person, you enjoy privileges. What privileges are we, are we talking about? Yes, it's partly true. If he went to a bank or wherever, 
they can't get credit, but he's told that he would he's more credit worthy than somebody else. When the, that's factually incorrect. If you go to a bank, they rate you on your ability to make repayment. So that's not a privilege. So when we say the privileges of the past, I'm never quite sure what we mean. So maybe going forward, we could just be a little bit more clear on what these so-called privileges are. But I agree Mm -hmm. that where we are in this country, I mean, I see the suffering amongst uh, black people in particular. It's just craziness. But... All right. Bruce, we'll, we'll pause it there. Bruce out in Kabecha. Um, he's actually reminding me of, of a study, quality of life study. I think it was done by the HSRC. We need to have a conversation about that because it answers all of Bruce's questions. KGM in Mafiken, good morning. Good morning, Kathy. Uh, good morning to your guest and to my fellow listeners. Uh, I'm going to quickly digress to what I wanted to address mm-hmm. because it talks to what what your previous caller is talking about. Now, I've got a few answers, not all of them for him. One is I stopped going to financial institution, uh, institutions in the country to look for funding for anything because it recognizes that I'm black. It recognizes that a white person is a white person. And by percentage, it will therefore give whites preferential scoring compared to me. This is not theory, it's fact. I run a financial services provider business, and I'm talking from from a knowledge coming from there. Secondly, of course, every society has delinquents. When he talks about white squatter camps, they did not come because of 94. They were there It's just that the apartheid government was doing everything in their powers to make sure that they are taken good care of, which is something that we can give to them compared to the now government, which doesn't really take care of um, all the people as it's supposed to. But we have to factor in, and I'm not justifying the rot that we have in our society. We have to factor in a number of issues. Okay. But apart from, K- apart K- KGM, short, let me give you yes. a chance to ask your question for Dr. Sisevo because I'm also mindful of the time. Okay, I, that's what I'm coming to. Okay. Uh, Doc, here, here's my dilemma. You've got a, a young chap like me who has a pan-African mindset and projects that, that can really take Africa to another level. He, he or she doesn't get blocked by white people as it were in the main. Our own people are the ones that will, because they don't have a stake on it, in it, whatever the project it, it, it is, how do we deal with that mindset in, in what you've articulated? Not just a mindset, but also a practice, but to a certain extent also a lifestyle mm-hmm. where KT will never do anything regardless of her resources, her ability, uh, because KGM is not getting SN out of it. If you can address that, I'll, I'll be happy. Thank you for taking my call. All right, KGM, no problem. KGM out in Mafiking. Okay, we're heading towards news. I'm going to take the voice note questions and comments, and then, uh, Dr. Seko, I'm going to ask you to stay with us, and you can give your response after the latest news. Hi, good morning, Kathy, and to, to your guest there. Um, Kathy, your guest mentioned um, Busi Mklongo. Um, is it possible that he can uh, mention some more literature and um, authors and you know academics from uh, from 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 Africa? Because I'm I'm a I know of uh, Dr. Francis Welsing, um, Joseph Ben Yakinen, uh, Dr. John Henry Clark, but those are all American writers and and scholars. Um, can you give us some more examples of our own people here? Thank you. This one asked Professor. This one asked Professor, what about uh, religious convictions? So sometimes a, a Christian, whether black or white, might have more values and common uh, uh, commonalities than even two white people that even speak Afrikaans. Say there's a non-Christian and a Christian of a white person. Uh, they might differ significantly. So is this included in the study?
The Talking Point with Kathy Mosasana. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. Eight after 11 o'clock, welcome to the third and final hour of the show. I did say that over the next hour for our health feature today, we're looking into this craze of the IV therapy, IV drips as they're called, and people going to get these vitamin drips uh, to help them, whether it's boost their energy, vitamin C deficiencies, skin lightening, skin brightening, whatever the promise is. Uh, that 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 one is 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 getting the drip for. We're going to be looking at that uh, a little bit further over the next hour. Before we do that, I want to give Doctor Sisako uh, an opportunity to respond uh, to the calls, to the questions that that we had, and also uh, the voice notes that came through for him. Thank you very much, Kathy. I think on the first one, which was uh, a caution against you know, using particular phrases. I, I believe you've already tackled that one to say, let's go to the HSRC uh, reports, and they do them quite often. Um, and, and I'm going to pose a question to, to, to everybody who sometimes, not sometimes, but who would probably get, uh, you know, their hairs stand up when I make such a claim to say that the minority continue to be privileged and to enjoy certain status, social, economic, and political status in this country while the majority eke an existence at the margins. I want to ask, why is that question, why is that statement so discomforting? And I'm asking this question as an individual who has worked on the question of national identity and culture in South Africa through doctoral research. Uh, and much of the evidence suggests that the story, the national story that is told of South Africa is tolerant of blackness and not inclusive of it. Now, on the question of... Um, what is it, uh, on the question of Pan-Africanism, um, especially the blockages that one might encounter, specifically from black folk and not necessarily from other races. I think the main thing in terms of starting, two things that I'll say, that the first is that the South African apartheid system, yes, we had wars being fought on the borders of Angola, etc., etc., but the real war that was fought was fought on the international stages using culture. You think about that, you know, Security Council interview that Miriam Makeba had with some of the, you know, Security Council members in the United Nations, and she addresses point blank the state of apartheid in South Africa. The music that was being produced by the likes of Ledambulu was effectively driving a wedge in the sense of the international community and the South African apartheid government. Uh, so culture becomes an important aspect. And I'm going to say, if, if it, it, it's not easy, of course, but let's stop relying on our government because the African National Congress, I might stand on some of the things that I might agree on some of the policies that they have taken, but as an intellectual, I do believe and think independently to say that they are very, very weak in the sense of supporting the arts and specifically supporting culture. Just the other day, the, the Minister of Foreign Affairs made a very curious and problematic statement to say we don't need the arts and artists, which I believe is fundamentally incorrect because of the function of the arts in fashioning nationhood and national identity. Now, to go to the artworks and artists that we can think about or that we can use and engage in the work that we are doing, I think of the likes of Noni Jabavu, for example. I think of, you know, her predecessors, J.T. Jabavu, Don, John Dengo Jabavu. I think of Diosoga. I think of Marke Mafuze. I think, and, and there are so many intellectuals, by the way, Shlanpa Mugwena, Dr. Professor Mugwena at... Uh, at, at uh, um, WISA, at Wits University, is doing incredible work with uh, the John Colenso School in KZN and black intellectuals that were writing uh, under the John Colenso School, the likes of Make Mafuze, you know, so many others. And, 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 and I'll say this in terms of contemporary artwork. There are young people. Last year, I believe, in the first semester of last year, I used the work of Aubrey Guana, in an introduction to philosophy class. And my students and I had a debate, a really in, amazing and rich debate throughout the whole semester to say, does the song Eyedwa by Obrigwana and Zamo Tofu give us philosophical propositions? And that was the richest conversation that my students and I have ever had in terms of an introduction class to philosophy. Now, what about the religious components? I do believe religion plays an incredible part as a way of also sort of culling down some of the distinctions and differences. But I do want to stress this, and I am Catholic myself, so I do believe 
in religion, but I want us to also pay attention to what religious to what religion does in the South African context. In my doctoral, I demonstrate how we have intra-black conflict as a result of amakolwa namakaba, right? Amakolwa, the derivative or, or, or sort of the way in which we conceptualize amakaba, we call them, uh, what is amakolwanjalo, we call them amakoboga, those who converted their ontology into the Christian faith. What did that mean for our country? Because, by the way, Amagaba still exists, and that's, Igaba is not somebody who's just merely not educated. It is a person who rejected colonial missionary education, Egaba Imbola, to distinguish themselves from those who had been converted Amagopoga. I think that was the basis of, of, of the questions. I would love to encourage listeners, please, to subscribe to the YouTube channel. It is the Black Archive Visual Podcast. On the channel, you will engage or you will encounter the teaser, which has an array of the speakers that we will be speaking to, and that's found on YouTube, as well as hosted on our former website as the Center for African Studies at Harvard University. But if you just go onto YouTube and you Google the Black Archive Visual Podcast, you will find the teaser that will demonstrate the lineup of speakers that we have throughout the season. I'm really looking forward uh, to seeing the work that is going to be produced by this podcast because, you know, there's just so much that one learns. And it's been a, a refreshing interview, um, not only because of the ideas that you've shared, but I think to see a young South African like yourself you know, I don't want to say flying the flag so high because it almost suggests that you did the work that you're doing to fly the flag. I think you did it because you're excellent at what you do. And by virtue of that, because you're South African, you take us along with you in, in, in that excellence. So really, kudos to you. And we look forward to seeing what else is going to come up of your work. Let me warn you, you'll probably get emails from a lot of people who want to engage you on some of the ideas you've shared. Uh, <laughs> the last time we had a professor on the show, he's, he sent me an update and, you know, his inbox was full oh of goodness. other academics oh that goodness. said, I heard you in SAFM. I want to uh, discuss this issue further with you, of course, using academic language. You know, professors, so professional. In the same way that uh, Dr. Kumalo has been throughout this entire interview, you can tell about, you can tell a lot about the world in which he exists in. There's no room for colloquialism. Next time, I need to go brush up on my English. <laughs> 16 after 11 o'clock. Thank you so much for coming you, into Kathy. studio, Dr. Kumalo.